Hello, my name is Sonny Reed. I am an American patriot. I'm a member of the John Birch Society. I'm a family man. I believe in my Father in Heaven. And I'm making podcasts to try and educate folks on what is actually happening right now in our nation. I know that everybody seems to be a little bit worried. Everybody seems to be concerned about what's happening. If you care about your country, that's a good sign. I'd like to introduce a book called The Law. It's written by a man named Frederick Bastiat. The, uh, about the author, I'll just simply read. When a viewer wishes to give special recognition to a book, he predicts that it will be read a hundred years from now. The Law, first published as a pamphlet in June of 1850, is already more than 150 years old. And because its truths are eternal, it will still be read when another century has passed. Frederick Bastiat, who lived 1801 to 1850, was a French economist, statesman, and author. He did most of his writing during the years just before and immediately following the revolution of February 1848. That's the French Revolution. This was a period when France was rapidly turning to complete socialism. As a deputy to the legislative body, the Legislative Assembly, Mr. Bastiat was studying and explaining each socialist fallacy as it appeared. And he explained how socialism must inevitably degenerate into communism. But most of his countrymen chose to ignore his logic. The law here, or excuse me, the law is presented here again because the same situation exists in America today as in the France of 1848. The same socialist communist ideas and plans that were then adopted in France are now sweeping America. The explanations and arguments then advanced by Mr. Bastiat are word for word equally valid today. His ideas deserve a serious hearing and understanding. To begin, the law. Preface to this section, the law perverted and the police powers of the state perverted along with it. The law, I say, not only turned from its proper purpose, but made to follow an entirely contrary purpose. The law became the weapon of every kind of greed. Instead of checking crime, the law itself guilty of the evils it is supposed to punish. If this is true, it is a serious fact and moral duty requires me to call the attention of my fellow citizens to it. Life is a gift from God. 
We hold from God the gift which includes all others. This gift is life, physical, intellectually, and moral life. But life cannot maintain itself alone. The creator of life has entrusted us with the responsibility of preserving, developing, and perfecting it. In order that we may accomplish this, he has provided us with a collection of marvelous faculties, and he has put us in the midst of a variety of natural resources. By the application of our faculties to, this, to these natural resources, we convert them into products and use them. This process is necessary in order that life may run its appointed course. Life, faculties, production. In other words, individuality, liberty, property. This is man. And in spite of the cunning of artful, artful political leaders, these three gifts from God precede all human legislation and are superior to it. Life, liberty, and property do not exist because men have made laws. On the contrary, it was the fact that life, liberty, and property existed beforehand that caused men to make laws in the first place. Law and government properly defined. What then is law? It is the collective organization of the individual right to lawful defense. Each of us has a natural right from God to defend his person, his liberty, and his property. These are the three basic requirements of life, and the preservation of any one of them is completely dependent upon the preservation of the other two. For what our faculties, for what are our faculties, but the extension of individuality, and what is property, but an extension of our faculties. If every person has the right to defend, even by force, his person, his liberty, and his property, then it follows that a group of men have the right to organize and support a common force to protect these rights constantly. Thus, the principle of collective right, its reason for existing, its lawfulness, is based on individual right. And the common force that protect, protects this collective right cannot logically have any other purpose or any other mission than that for which it acts as a substitute. Thus, since an individual cannot lawfully use force against the person, liberty, or property of another individual, For the same reason, uh, then the common force, for the same reason, cannot lawfully be used to destroy the person, liberty, or property of individuals or groups. Such a perversion of force would be, in both cases, contrary to our premise. Force has been given to us to defend our own individual rights. Who will dare to say that force has been given to us to destroy the equal rights of our brothers? Since no individual acting separately can lawfully use force to destroy the rights of others, does it not logically follow that the same principle also applies to the common force that is nothing more than the 
organized combination of the individual forces? If this is true, then nothing can be more evident than this. The law is the organization of the natural right of lawful defense. It is the substitution of the common force for individual forces. And this common force is to do only what the individual forces have a natural and lawful right to do, to protect persons, liberties, and properties, to maintain the right of each, and to cause justice to reign all over us, over us all. A just and enduring government. If a nation were founded on this basis, it seems to me that order would prevail among the people in thought as well as in deed. It seems to me that such a nation would have the most simple, easy to accept, economical, limited, non-oppressive, just, and enduring government imaginable, whatever its political form might be. Under such an administration, everyone would understand that he possessed all the privileges as well as all the responsibilities of his existence. No one would have any argument with government provided this person was respected, his labor was free, and the fruits of his labor were protected against all unjust attack. When successful, we would not have to thank the state for our success, and conversely, when unsuccessful, we would no more think of blaming the state for our misfortune than would the farmers blame the state of hail or frost, blame the state because of hail or frost. The state would be felt only by the invaluable blessings of safety provided by this concept of government. It can be further stated that thanks to the non-intervention of the state in private matters, our wants and their satisfactions would develop themselves in a logical manner. We would not see poor families seeking literary instruction before they could read. We would not see cities populated at the expense of rural districts, nor rural districts at the expense of cities. We would not see the great displacements of capital, labor, and population that are caused by legislative decision. The sources of our existence are made uncertain and precarious by these state-created displacements, and furthermore, these acts burden the government with increased responsibilities. Page 4, Complete Perversion of the Law. But, unfortunately, law by no means confines itself to its proper functions. And when it has exceeded its proper functions, it has not done so merely in some inconsequential and debatable matters. The law has gone farther than this. It has acted in direct opposition to its own purpose. The law has been used to destroy its own objective. It has been applied to annihilating the justice that it was supposed to maintain, to limiting and destroying rights, which its real purpose was to respect. The law has placed the collective force at the disposal of the unscrupulous who wished without risk to exploit the person, liberty, and property of others. It has converted plunder into a right in order to protect plunder and it has converted lawful defense into a crime in order to punish lawful defense. 
How has this perversion of the law been accomplished? And what have been the results? The law has been perverted by the influence of two entirely different causes, stupid greed and false philanthropy. Let us speak of the first, a fatal tendency of mankind. Self-preservation and self-development are common aspirations among all people. And if everyone enjoyed the unrestricted use of his faculties and the free disposition of the fruits of his labor, social progress would be ceaseless, uninterrupted, and unfailing. But there is also another tendency that is common among people. When they can, they wish to live and prosper at the expense of others. This is no rash accusation, nor does it come from a gloomy and uncharitable spirit. The annals of history bear witness to the truth of it. The incessant wars, mass migrations, religious persecutions, universal slavery, honest or dishonesty in commerce and monopolies. This fatal desire has its origin in the very nature of man, in that primitive, universal, and irrepressible instinct that impels him to satisfy his desires with the least possible gain, or least possible pain. Property and plunder, we're on page five. Man can live and satisfy his wants only by ceaseless labor, by the ceaseless application of his faculties to natural resources. This process is the origin of property. But it is also true that a man may live and satisfy his wants by seizing and consuming the products of the labor of others. This process is the origin of plunder. Now, since man is naturally inclined to avoid pain, and since labor is pain in itself, it follows that men will resort to plunder whenever plunder is easier than work. History shows this quite clearly, and under these conditions, neither religion nor morality can stop it. When then does plunder stop? It stops when it becomes more painful and more dangerous than labor. It is evident then that the purpose of law is to use the power of its collective force to stop this fatal tendency to plunder instead of work. All the measures of law should protect property and punish plunder. But generally, the law is made by one man or one class of men. And since law cannot separate without the sanction and support of a dominating force, this force must be entrusted to those who make the laws. This fact, combined with the fatal tendency that exists in the heart of man to satisfy his wants with the least possible effort, explains the almost universal perversion of the law. Thus, it is easy to understand how law, instead of checking injustice, becomes the invincible weapon of injustice. Instead of checking injustice, becomes the invincible weapon of injustice. It is easy to understand why the law is used by legis the legislator to destroy, in varying degrees, in varying degrees, among the rest of the people, their personal independence by slavery, their liberty by oppression, and their property by plunder. 
This is done for the benefit of the person who makes the law and in proportion to the power that he holds. Page 6. Victims of lawful plunder. Men naturally rebel against the injustice of which they are victims. Thus, when plunder is organized by law for the profit of those who make the law, all the plundered classes try somehow to enter by peaceful or revolutionary means into the making of laws. According to their degree of enlightenment, these plundered classes may propose one or two entirely different purposes when they attempt to attain political power. Either they may wish to st stop lawful plunder or they may wish to share in it. Woe to the nation when this latter purpose prevails among the mass victims of lawful plunder, when they in turn seize the power to make laws. Until that happens, the, pra the few practice lawful plunder upon the many, a common practice which the right to participate in make the making of law is limited to a few persons. But then participation in the making of law becomes universal. And then men seek to balance their conflicting interests by universal plunder. Instead of rooting out the injustices found in society, they make these injustices general. As soon as the plundered classes gain political power, they establish a system of reprisals against other classes. They do not abolish legal plunder. This objective would demand more enlightenment than, the pro than they possess. Instead, they emulate their evil predecessors by participating in this legal plunder, even though it is against their own interests. It is as if it were necessary before a reign of justice appears for everyone to suffer a cruel retribution. Some of these evil, some for their evilness and some for their lack of understanding. Page 7. The Results of Legal Plunder It is impossible to introduce into society a greater change and a greater evil than this, the conversion of law into an instrument of plunder. What are the consequences of such a perversion? It would require volumes to describe them all. Thus we must contend ourselves with pointing out the most striking. In the first place, it erases from everyone's conscience the distinction between justice and injustice. No society can exist unless the laws are respected to a certain degree. The safest way to make laws respected is to make them respectable. When law and morality contradict each other, the citizen has the cruel alternative of either losing his moral sense or losing his respect for the law. These two evils are of equal consequence and it would be difficult for a person to choose between them. The nature of law is to maintain justice. This is so much the case that in the minds of the people, law and justice are one and the same thing. There is in all of us a strong disposition to believe that anything lawful is also legitimate. This belief is so widespread that many persons have erroneously held that things are just because the laws make them so. Thus, in order to make plunder appear just and sacred to many consciences, 
it is only necessary for the law to decree and sanction it. Slavery, restrictions, and monopoly find defenders not only among those who profit from them, but also among those who suffer from them. If you suggest a doubt as to the morality of these institutions, it is boldly said that, quote, you are a dangerous innovator, a utopian, a theorist, a subversive. You would shatter the foundation upon which society rests, close quote. If you lecture upon morality or upon political science, there will be found organ official organizations petitioning the government in this vein of thought, quote, that science no longer be taught exclusively from the point of view of free trade, of liberty, of property, and of justice, as has been the case until now, but also in the future science is to be especially taught from the viewpoint of the facts and laws that regulate French industry, or in our case, American industry, facts and laws that are contrary to liberty, to property, and to justice. That, in government endowed teaching positions, the professor rigorously refrained from endangering in the slightest degree the respect due to the laws now in force. That is from the General Council of Manufacturers, Agriculture and Commerce, Commerce, May 6, 1850. Thus, if there exists a law which sanctions slavery or monopoly, oppression or robbery in any form whatsoever, it must not be mentioned. For how can it be mentioned without damaging the respect which it inspires? Still further, morality and political economy must be taught from the point of view of this law, from the supposition that it must be a just law merely because it is a law. Universal suffrage, another effect of this tragic perversion of the law is that it gives an exaggerated importance to political passions and conflicts and to politics in general. We're on page eight. I could prove this assertion in a thousand ways, but by way of illustration, I shall limit myself to a subject that has lately occupied the minds of everyone, universal suffrage. The followers of Rousseau's school of thought, who consider themselves far advanced, but whom I consider 20 centuries behind the times, will not agree with me on this. The univer but universal suffrage, using the word in its strictest sense, is not one of those sacred dogmas which is a crime to examine or doubt. In fact, serious objections may be made to universal suffrage. In the first place, the word universal conceals a gross fallacy. For example, there are 36 million people in France. Thus, to make the right of universal suffrage, there should be 36 million voters. But most extended system, the most extended system permits only 9 million people to do so. 9 million people to vote. Three persons out of four are excluded. We're on page nine. And more than this, they are excluded by the fourth. 
This fourth person advances the principle of incapacity as his person for excluding the others. Universal suffrage means then universal suffrage for those who are capable. But there remains this question of fact. Who is capable? Are minors, females, insane persons, and persons who have committed certain major crimes the only ones to determine, be determined incapable? A closer examination of the subject shows us the motive which causes the right of suffrage to be based upon the supposition of incapacity. The motive is that the elector or voter does not exercise this right for himself alone, but for everybody. The most extended elective system and the most restricted elective system are alike in this respect. They differ only in respect to what constitutes incapacity. It is not a difference of principle, but merely a difference of degree. If, as the Republicans of our day, our present day, Greek and Romans, I'll begin again. If, as the Republicans of our present day, Greek and Roman schools of thought pretend, the right of suffrage arrives with one's birth, it would be an injustice for adults to prevent women and children from voting. Why are they prevented? Because they are presumed to be incapable. And why is incapacity a motive for exclusion? Because it is not the voter alone who suffers the consequences of his vote. Because each vote touches and affects everyone in the entire community. Because the people in the community have a right to demand some safeguards concerning the acts upon which their welfare and existence depend. I know what might be said in answer to this and what objections might be. But this is not the place to exhaust a controversy of this nature. I merely wish to observe that this controversy over universal suffrage, as well as most other political questions which agitates excites and overthrows nations would lose nearly all of its importance if the law had always been what it ought to be. In fact, if law were restricted to protecting all persons, all liberties and all properties, if law were nothing more than the organized combination of the individual's right to self-defense, if law were the obstacle, the check, the punisher of all oppression and plunder, is it likely that we citizens would then argue much about the extent of the franchise? Under these circumstances, it is likely that the extent of the right to vote would endanger that supreme good, the public peace. Is it likely that the excluded classes would refuse to peaceably await the coming of their right to vote? Is it likely that those who had the right to vote would jealously defend their privilege? If the law were confined to its proper functions, everyone's interest in the law would be the same. Is it not clear that under those circumstances, those who voted could not inconvenience those who did not vote? On page 10. The fatal idea of legal plunder. But on the other hand, imagine that this fatal principle has been introduced. Under 
the pretense of organization, regulation, protection, or encouragement, the law takes property from one person and gives it to another. The law takes the wealth of all and gives it to a few. Whether farmers, manufacturers, ship owners, artists, or comedians. Under these circumstances, then, certainly every class will aspire to grasp the law, and logically so. The excluded classes will furiously demand their right to vote and will overthrow society rather than not to obtain it. Even beggars and vagabonds will then prove to you that they also have an incontestable title to vote. They will say to you, we cannot buy wine, tobacco, or salt without paying the tax. And a part of the tax that we pay is given by law, its privileges and privileges and subsidies to men who are richer than we are. Others use the law to raise the prices of bread, meat, iron, or cloth. Thus, since everyone else uses the law for his own profit, we also would like to use the law for our own profit. We demand from the law the right to relief, which is the poor man's plunder. To obtain this right, we also should be voters and legislators in order that we may organize beggary organize beggary on a grand scale for our own class, as you have organized protection on a grand scale for your class. Uh, don't tell us beggars that you will act for us and then toss us, as Mr. Memorel, textile manufacturer and politician, proposes 600,000 francs to keep us quiet, like throwing us a bone to gnaw we have other claims, and anyway, we wish to bargain for ourselves, as other classes have bargained for themselves. And what can you say to answer that argument? As long as it is admitted that the law may be diverted from its true purpose, that it may violate property instead of protecting it, then everyone will want to participate in making the law, either to protect himself against plunder or to use it for plunder. Political questions will always be prejudicial, dominant, and all-absorbing. All-absorbing. There will be fighting at the door of the legislative palace, and the struggle within will be no less furious. To know this, it is hardly necessary to examine what transpires in the French and English legislatures. Merely to understand the issue, is to know the answer. Is there any need to offer proof that this odious perversion of the law is a perpetual source of hatred and discord that it tends to destroy society itself? If such proof is needed, look at the United States in 1850. There is no country in the world where the law is kept more within its proper domain, the protection of every person's liberty and property. As a consequence of this, there appears to be no country in the world where the social order rests on a firmer foundation, but even in the United States there are two issues, and only two. They have always endangered the public peace. That have always endangered the public peace. What are these two issues? They are slavery and tariffs. These are the only two issues where contrary to the general spirit of the Republic of the United States, 
law has assumed the character of a plunderer. Slavery is a violation by law of liberty. The protective tariff is a violation by law of property. Page 12. It is a most remarkable fact that this double legal crime, a sorrowful inheritance from the old world, should be the only issue which can and perhaps will lead to the ruin of the Union. It is indeed impossible to imagine at the very heart of a society more astounding, a more astounding fact than this. The law has come to be an instrument of injustice. And if this fact brings terrible consequences to the United States, where the purpose of law of the law has been perverted only in the instances of slavery and tariffs, what must be the consequences in Europe where the perversion of the law is a principle, a system? Two kinds of plunder. Dr. Mr. De Montalembert, writer and politician, adopting the thought contained in a famous proclamation by Mr. Collier, chief of the Paris police at that time, has said, quote, we must make war against socialism, close quote. According to the definition of socialism advanced by Mr. Charles Dupine, political economist, he meant, quote, we must make war against plunder, close quote. But of what plunder was he speaking? For there are two kinds of plunder, legal and illegal. I do not think that illegal plunder, such as theft or swindling, which the penal code defines, anticipates, and punishes, can be called socialism. It is not this kind of plunder that systematically threatens the foundations of society. Anyway, the war against this kind of plunder has not waited for the command of these gentlemen. The war against illegal plunder has been fought since the beginning of the world, long before the revolution of February 1848, long before the appearance even of socialism itself. France had provided police, judges, gendarmes, prisons, dungeons, and scaffolds for the purpose of fighting legal plunder. The law itself conducts this war, and it is my wish and opinion that the law should always maintain this attitude toward plunder. But it does not always do this. Sometimes the law defends plunder and perpetuates it. Thus the beneficiaries are spared the shame, danger, and scruple that their acts would otherwise involve. Sometimes the law places the whole apparatus of judges, police, prisons, and gendarmes at the service of the plunderers and treats the victim when he defends himself as a criminal. In short, there is a le this is a legal plunder, and it is of this, no doubt, that Mr. de Montalembert speaks. This legal plunder may be only an isolated stain upon the legislative measures of the people. If so, it is best to wipe it out with a minimum of speeches and denunciations and in spite of the uproar of the vested interests. We're on page 13. 
legal plunder defined. But how is this legal plunder to be identified? Quite simply, see if the law takes from some persons what belongs to them and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong. If the law benefits one citizen at the expense of another by doing what the citizen himself cannot do without committing a crime, then abolish this law without delay, for it is not only an evil itself, but also it is a fertile source for further evils because it invites reprisals. If such a law, which may be an isolated case, is not abolished immediately, it will spread multiply and develop into a system. The person who profits from this law will complain bitterly, defending his acquired rights. He will claim that the state is obliged to protect and encourage his particular industry, that this procedure enriches the state because the protected industry is thus able to spend more and to pay higher wages to the poor working man. Do not listen to this sophistry by vested interests. The acceptance of these arguments will build legal plunder into a whole system. In fact, this has already occurred. The present-day delusion is an attempt to enrich everyone at the expense of everyone else, to make plunder universal under the pretense of organizing it. Page 14. Legal plunder has many names. Now, legal plunder can be committed in an infinite number of ways. Thus, we have an infinite number of plans for organizing it. Tariffs, protection, benefits, subsidies, encouragements, progressive taxation, public schools, guaranteed jobs, guaranteed profits, minimum wages, a right to relief, a right to the tools of labor, free credit, and so on, and so on. All these plans as a whole, with their common aim of legal plunder, constitute socialism. Now, since under this definition, socialism is a body of doctrine, what attack can be made against it other than a war of doctrine? If you find this socialistic doctrine to be false, absurd, and evil, then refute it. And the more false, the more absurd, the more evil it is, the easier it will be to refute. Above all, if you wish to be strong, begin by rooting out every particle of socialism that may have crept into your legislation. This will be no light task. Mr. de Montalembert has been accused of desiring to fight socialism by the use of brute force. He ought to be exonerated from this accusation, for he has plainly said, quote, the war that we must fight against socialism must be in harmony with law, honor, and justice, close quote. But why does Mr. de Montalembert see that he has placed himself in a vicious circle? Would you use the law to oppose socialism? But it is upon the law that socialism itself relies socialist desire to practice legal plunder, not illegal plunder. Socialists, like all, our, all other monopolists, desire to make the law their own weapon. And when once the law is on the side of socialism, how can it be used against socialism? For when plunder is abetted by the law, it does not fear your courts, your gender merits, 
your or and your persons. Rather, it may call upon them for help. To prevent this, you would exclude socialism from entering into the making of laws. You would prevent socialists from entering the legislative palace. You shall not succeed, I predict, so long as legal plunder constitutes, continues to be the main business of the legislature. It is illogical, in fact absurd, to assume otherwise. Page 15. The choice before us. This question of legal plunder must be settled at once. I'll begin again. This question of legal plunder must be settled once and for all. And there are only three ways to settle it. One, the few plunder the many. Two, everybody plunders everybody. Three, nobody plunders anybody. We must make our choice among, the limited, among limited plunder, universal plunder, or no plunder. The law can only, the law can follow only one of these three. Limited legal plunder. This system prevailed when the right to vote was restricted. One would turn back to this system to prevent the invasion of socialism. Universal legal plunder. We have been threatened with this system since the franchise was made universal. The newly enfranchised majority has decided to formulate law on the same principle of legal plunder that was used by their predecessors when the vote was limited. No legal plunder. This is the principle of justice, peace, order, stability, harmony, and logic. Until the day of my death, I shall proclaim this principle with all the force of my lungs, which, alas, is all too inadequate. Translator's note. At the time this was written, Mr. Bastiat knew that he was dying of tuberculosis. Within a year, he was dead. And in all sincerity, can anything more than the absence of plunder be required of the law? Can the law, which necessarily requires the use of force, rationally be used for anything except protecting the rights of everyone? I defy anyone to extend it beyond the, this purpose without perverting it and consequently turning might against right. This is the most fatal and most illogical social perversion that can possibly be imagined. It must be admitted that the true solution no so long searched for in the area of local relationships is contained in these simple words, law is organized justice. Now this must be said. When justice is organized by law, that is by force. This excludes the idea of using law or force to organize any human activity, whatever, whether it be labor, charity, agriculture, common, commerce, industry, education, art, or religion. The organizing by law of any of these would inevitably destroy the essential organization, justice. For truly, 
how can we imagine force being used against the liberty of citizens without it also being used against justice and those acting against its proper purpose? Page 16, The Seductive Lure of Socialism. Here I encounter the more here I encounter the most popular fallacy of our times. It is not considered sufficient that the law should be just. It must be philanthropic. Nor is it sufficient that the law should be guaranteed, nor is it sufficient that the law should guarantee to every citizen the free and inoffensive use of his faculties for physical, intellectual, and moral self-improvement. Instead, it is demanded that the law should directly extend welfare, education, and morality throughout the nation. This is the seductive lure of socialism, and I repeat again, these two uses of the law are in direct contradiction to each other. We must choose between them. A citizen cannot at the same time be free and not free. Mr. de Lamartine, once wrote to me thusly, quote, Your doctrine is only half of my program. You have stopped at liberty. I go on to fraternity, close quote. I answered him, The second half of your program will destroy the first, close quote. In fact, it is impossible for me to separate the word fraternity from the word voluntary. I cannot possibly understand how fraternity can be legally enforced without liberty being legally destroyed, thus justice being fully trampled, legally trampled underfoot. The Roots of Plunder, page 17. Legal plunder has two roots. One of them, as I said before, is in human greed. The other is in false philanthropy. At this point, I think that I should explain exactly what I mean by the word plunder. I do not, that is, is, as, it, as is often done, use the word in any vague, uncertain, approximate, or metaphorical sense. I use it in its scientific acceptance as expressing the idea opposite to that of property, which is wages, land, money, or whatever. When a portion of wealth is transferred from the person who owns it, without his consent and without compensation, and whether by force or by fraud, to anyone who does not own it, then I say that property is violated, that an act of plunder is committed. I say that this act is exactly what the law is supposed to suppress, always and everywhere. When the law itself commits this act that it is supposed to su suppress, I say that plunder is still committed, and I add...